Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and I welcome you. If you're watching online, if you're in one of our other campuses, if you're upstairs in the chapel or here in the worship center, so grateful that we could be together and worship in this way. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? And I want you to know Thanksgiving is really a, an expression of our gratitude to God reflecting back to him his grace. That's really what it is. Thanksgiving is reflecting God's grace back to him. And so we have a lot to be grateful for, and I hope in this message today you're going to be able to um, understand that. But you know, you can't show grace that you have not embraced. I want you to say that with me. You can't show grace that you have not embraced. One more time. You can't show grace that you have not embraced. And so that's really the, the key of what we're going to see in the Word of God today. And that's really the problem with people who struggle with forgiveness. I can't, you can't forgive others if you don't know that you need forgiveness yourself. And if you've forgotten what Christ paid to be able to make forgiveness possible for you, you can't show grace that you haven't received. The past couple of weeks, we've been doing a deep dive into this theme of forgiveness and the story of the prodigal son. And it's been a phenomenal focus. And remember that Jesus in Luke 15 gives three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, reminding us that we are like sheep going astray, and the shepherd, Jesus, rescued us. We are like a coin. We are stamped with the image of God, and we were lost, and yet we were restored. And we are like the son who was rebellious and sinful, and the father seeks to restore. In the same way, God is a forgiving father. Aren't you glad for that? Our God is a forgiving Father. You know, it's, when you look at some of the literary devices that are in the Bible, the way God just with great artistry wraps something up so that we can understand the meaning and the application of it, and it can open our eyes and it can really slide past our defenses and explode inside our hearts and lead to life transformation. And the Bible is beautiful with its artistry of those literary devices. Um, actually, a parable is a literary device. Dr. David Turner, a member of our church, says the parable is simply a little story with a big meaning. And we've been seeing this little story with a tremendously big meaning because it focuses on this emphasis on forgiveness. The interesting thing about these stories, though, in each of the first stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, it ends with a celebration. But in the story of the prodigal son, there's something added at the end. There's something in addition that Jesus gives us there. And it is the, the part of the story of the elder brother. And you have to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus in that story add that feature? And you have to go back to the beginning, the occasion, the setting of all of those parables to understand why Jesus does this. In Luke chapter 15, we see this, that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisee and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus was being criticized by the Pharisees and the scribes for welcoming sinners and actually receiving their hospitality. And Jesus' response is this, I wear that as a badge of honor. That's really what he's telling in these stories. Every one of these stories is in some way confronting the Pharisees and the scribes because it really talks about his heart and mission. So Paul, think about Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1.15. 
115. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's Paul's story. And he was a Pharisee. In the final parable, you see the heart of the father represents the heart of God who wants to show grace and forgive sinners. And you see the character of the elder brother who's much like the Pharisees. And I say again, in that elder brother, you see self-righteousness and spiritual pride, legalism, and a lack of grace. You can't show grace that you haven't embraced. And you can't show forgiveness when you don't recognize your own sin and your own need. And friends, that's my problem. That's my problem. I want to just confess to you all that I am a recovering Pharisee. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. I was raised in a, in a church home that was religiously liberal, denying the scripture, denying the gospel, much like the Sadducees who had a very uh, limited view of scripture and an anti-supernatural bias. That's what I grew up with. If, if you ever kind of go down a country road here in uh, West Michigan, you'll see sometimes there's deep ditches on both sides. I want you to just imagine that with me. One ditch is the ditch of liberalism, denying the authority of the word of God, denying the, the supernatural nature of scripture and of God's work and the need for the gospel itself. But what I found when I trusted Christ as savior, I wound up in another ditch over here that's called legalism, Phariseeism. Not even realizing I had done that, but that's really where I wound up. And then I began to realize as I began to study the Bible that I was falling into another ditch over there. And friends, I want to tell you, I don't want to be in either ditch. Because if you're in this ditch, you're in a ditch. If you're in this ditch, you're in a ditch. The road is the gospel. The road is grace. The road is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to be a biblical Christ follower. What about you? Amen. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees here. He confronts them. So listen, as we, as we, I want you to think about the background of the Pharisees to understand why this is such a trap for those of us who do have a high view of Scripture. If you remember in the Old Testament, after just centuries of time of God confronting Israel and Judah with their idolatry, worshiping of false gods, with their immorality, with their rebellion and disobedience to him, violating his covenant, God finally says, I've got enough. I'm going to send you... He sent the, uh, the, Israel, the, the tribes of Israel into Assyria in captivity, and he sent the tribe of Judah into the Babylonian captivity. And he says, you want idolatry? I'm going to give you your stomach full because you're going to be surrounded with it. You want immorality? You're going to be surrounded with it. And in the midst of that 70-year captivity, a group of Jews said, you know what? We don't like living in captivity. We don't like the consequences of our sin. So we're going to take a high view of Scripture— and we're going to put around the scripture these extra rules that we have to keep you from disobeying the scripture. And we're going to establish traditions so that we don't do that. The problem is what began with a good intention ended poorly because the traditions and the rules became more important than the scripture. And they fell into self-righteousness and legalism and pride. And so I want you to stand with me as we read this, this portion of the parable and just to follow along as we, we're going to begin with the father's restoration of the prodigal and then read this section about the older son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fatted calf, slaughter it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's come back to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. The music should change in this point to a minor key. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music, it's actually the word for symphony, and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things should be, what's going on. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he's received him back uh, safe and sound, brought him back healthy. But he has become angry. He, He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began to pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. And he's begun to live. He was lost. And he's been found. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You could call this part of the story, guess who's not coming to dinner? The unforgiving brother. This... Seeming addendum to the story is really part of the story. It's just like the Pharisees. The unforgiving brother did not attend the celebration. There's no music, no dancing, no feast for him. You know why? Because there was no grace. There's no grace. And you can't enter into the celebration of grace if you haven't embraced the grace. And he was... Refused to go in. The, the, the verb tense actually expressed somebody who not just once, but repeatedly refuses to go in. It was an ongoing attitude, not just a momentary overreaction. And the unforgiving brother was angry. He was angry that the father had shown such forgiving grace to his brother. Imagine that. He's angry at the father for showing, restoring, and forgiving grace to the son. And the Pharisees were angry at Jesus for forgiving grace to sinners who came to him in faith and repentance. That was their constant and continual reaction. You see, Pharisees are about judgment, but they can't relate to unlimited mercy, undeserved grace, and uncontainable love. And that's what God's like. That's why they had a problem with Jesus. The father went out of the celebration when he heard that the elder son wouldn't come in. And he actually pleaded with him. The word literally means he came alongside him and he encouraged him. He wanted him to join in the celebration. But he wouldn't come in. Because his spirit was bitter and critical. The son's response to the father shows his true heart attitude. And yet the father, the father showed the same love that he showed to the prodigal, he now shows to his Pharisee-like elder son. I want you to see that. 
the Father showed the same compassion. He showed the same grace. He showed the same love. God reaches out to both the religious Pharisee and the irreligious prodigal with the same grace and the same love. The son's anger reminds me of Cain's anger in Genesis 4. And God, God came alongside Cain and, and sought to restore him. And Cain was unwilling and, you know, killed his brother. Same kind of a spirit here. He was angry. You see, in, in this culture, the, the elder brother had the responsibility when there was a problem with his siblings that he was to be the agent of reconciliation with the father. But he's not interested in reconciliation. He's interested in judgment. In the same way, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were angry at Jesus' message of grace and his ministry of reconciliation of sinners. Can you imagine that? They were angry at Jesus for the very purpose he had come. Jesus had come for the reconciliation of sinners. The, unforg the unforgiving brother was self-righteous. Uh, listen to his words. Look, for so many years, I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. Let's take that apart a minute. For so many years, it's like this was all pent up. I have been serving you. He uses the word of a slave. I've been working like a slave for you, Father. Matter of fact, he had just come in from the field. Uh, his, his attitude was one of performance. He was claiming his rights, his works. He said, I've been doing all of this for you. I've been working like a slave. He was a son, but he thought himself as a slave. You see, Phariseeism leads to spiritual slavery. Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. He also said, uh, I have never disobeyed a command of yours. And when I read that, I smiled and said, Really? You never once ever disobeyed the Father? You never once didn't fulfill your duty? You never once were rebellious as a little child? Not once. That's what he's claiming. Uh, he needed to read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus takes the law of God and says, you think you have obeyed the law of God when you don't kill somebody, but when you hate your brother, it's like murder. You think you've obeyed the law of God when you don't commit adultery, but when you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, it's not about the externals, it's about the internals. It's about changing your heart. And this son had violated the greatest commandment of loving God and loving others because he had no love for his brother. And he really didn't have love for the father who represents God. The Pharisees complicate the spiritual life. Jesus simplified the spiritual life. He said, listen, you want to you please God? Just love God with abandon with your whole being. Do that vertically and then love one another horizontally. This son didn't get it and Pharisees don't. It's not about love for them. See, self-righteousness, my friend, is a cancer. It's a cancer of the soul. It is rooted in spiritual pride, and it produces the fruit of comparison and criticism. And that's what he's doing here. Jesus confronts repeatedly the self-righteousness of the Pharisees 
in another parable. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. I want you to see this. Luke repeatedly gives the stories of Jesus confronting Phariseeism. Luke 18, 9 to 14. This will mess with you. It did with me. Now, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, notice that, prideful, self-righteous, that they were righteous, and viewed others with contempt. It tells a story, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. By the way, the tax collectors was sort of like working for the IRS and the mafia at the same time, the mafia being the Roman uh, soldiers. The Pharisee stood and began praying this with regards to himself. So listen to the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooks, adulterers, or even like this, he's pointing the finger, tax collector. I fast twice in the week. This is his bring and brag. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, here's, here's a contrast, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards God, towards heaven. But he's beating his breast, which was a Jewish expression of extreme grief, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the words that are actually in the text would sound like this, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Now, that's not a word we use all the time, but I want to tell you what it means. The word he actually uses means, God, provide for me a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And friends, as Luke pens that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is remembering that the end of the story in Luke is the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. God be propitiated to me, the sinner. And then here's the clincher. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, meaning the tax collector, went to his house justified, declared righteous by God, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine the shell shock to the Pharisees that are hearing Jesus tell this for the first time? You got to be kidding me. You're telling me that this tax collector is declared righteous by God for that prayer? And you're telling me that we Pharisees don't get in? Exactly. Because you don't understand grace. And you don't understand the gospel. Paul was a Pharisee. He was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his whole world was turned upside down. And for the first time, he came to really understand the gospel. Paul referred to himself, get this, as the chief of sinners. This is the guy who had been a Pharisee. He in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9 said, he counted his self-righteousness as rubbish, fit only for the spiritual dump. Paul in Romans said, there's none righteous, no, not one, both Jew and Gentile, both Pharisee and publican. There's none righteous. Matter of fact, he says, all our righteousness is like filthy, leprous rags. That's what Isaiah said. So, so Paul in Romans indicts all of humanity and says, all of us have sinned. All of us need grace. All of us need what Jesus did on the cross. Pharisees didn't get it. The unforgiving brother complained, you never gave me a young goat, say nothing about the fatted calf, that I might celebrate with my friends. Hey, the father had already given him two-thirds of his inheritance. You've never given me even a little, a little goat so I could have a party? He was complaining. 
Do you think that you deserve more from God? You know, really, every time we complain, that's really what we're saying to God. It's the opposite of thanksgiving. It's the opposite of grace reflecting. You think you deserve more from God? You just might be a Pharisee. Uh, friends, when I, when I come face to face with this, in reality, what I deserve, and, and I mean this, and I hope you get this, I deserve judgment. I deserve the punishment of my sin. I deserved the wrath of God. I deserved an eternity in hell. So don't ever say, I just want to get what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. You want what only grace can provide. Anything other than that judgment, wrath, is because of Christ's death in my place. That's the gospel and his resurrection from the dead. It's all mercy, grace, and love that I did not deserve and that you don't deserve. And he's complaining because he thought he deserved more. Do you know, there's no record of the forgiven prodigal complaining. He knew what he deserved. But he lived apparently the rest of his life in the abundance of the father's house that he didn't deserve with gratitude because of grace. And think about that the next time you complain about what you didn't get from God. Pharisees think they deserve more. Prodigals are grateful for grace. Which are you? The unforgiving father was judgmental. He says to the father, the son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. By the way, how did he know that the son had spent his money on prostitutes? Was that slander? Had he heard a report from somebody else passing through? He did nothing to go and rescue his brother, to plead with him to return, but he's now judgmental. He won't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours. He clearly was not ready to forgive his brother. He didn't ask questions about the prodigal's return and his repentance. He judged him and criticized him. He wanted to keep him under the cloud of past sins rather than allow him in the sunlight of the Father's forgiveness. Friends, if that's you, if you're trying to keep somebody else under the cloud of past sins that should have been forgiven then you're a Pharisee. He was on the detour of judgmentalism rather than on the highway of grace. And he doesn't know himself because he has no awareness of his own sin. He doesn't know the Father. He's not sharing in his love and joy. He doesn't know redemption and has no concern for repentant sinners. I thought about this. What if the Pharisee-like elder brother had been the one to encounter the prodigal as he's coming home, rather than the father. What if as he shows up on the horizon, it is his judgmental, critical brother that confronts him? He would have turned and never come back. But instead, it is the embrace 
of love and mercy and grace by a father. Thank God for people who know how to treat a repentant sinner. His hypocrisy was evident like that of the Pharisees. Another story about forgiveness is told in Luke chapter 7. I just want to give you the overview of this because it ties right with what's happening here. Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee named Simon, apparently not out of a real interest in Jesus' teaching, but a chance to be able to catch him. And during the, the dinner, a woman who was notorious for her sinful lifestyle can't, comes into the banquet, and she stands behind Jesus at his feet, weeping over her sin and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing him with fragrant oil. And Simon the the Pharisee thinks within himself, this man, being of Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Uh, what Simon didn't know is that Jesus read minds. Jesus knew exactly what he was thinking and not saying. So Jesus starts telling a story about two debtors that owed money to a money, a money lender. One owed 500 denarii, that's an equivalent of 500 days wages. That's a lot of money. The other owed 50. And the money lender forgave them both because they had nothing to pay with. Uh, by the way, forgiveness means canceling a debt, but someone still has to pay. You don't just write it off. Someone's got to pay. And here the money lender is the one who paid so they could be forgiven. And it's God who paid on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven. And he asks a question. Now, which of them, the one with the 500, the one with the 50, will love him more? And Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to Simon, you've, you've judged rightly. But then he applies it. He turns to the women and reminds Simon that he hadn't shown them common courtesy and hospitality he had not washed his feet he had not kissed him he had not anointed him with oil that was part of the hospitality of that day that reflected his his lack of genuine love for jesus and respect for who he is and jesus reminded him of what the woman had done how she washed his feet with her tears how she had dried them with her hair how she had kissed his feet and how she had anointed him with oil and he says this, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved him much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus then turns to the woman, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven, and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the others at the table began to just have this murmuring undertone. Who is this that forgives sins? Who is this? This is the holy God who became a man to show love for sinners and die on the cross for their sins. Who is this? It is God who alone has the right to judge, who's willing to show mercy and forgive. Who is this? It's a God who has abundant grace greater than our abundant sins. It is the God-man who has the authority to forgive. At the end of the parable, the father speaks. And the forgiving father's response is the polar opposite from the unforgiving brother. Son, you're always with me. 
all that is mine is yours. In spite of his unforgiving spirit, critical, judging, and bitter attitude, the father offers him his presence and a relationship based on abundant grace. Get this. The father who offered such forgiving grace to the prodigal is willing to offer the same forgiving grace to the Pharisee-like elder son. And he is to every Pharisee among us, willing to offer abundant grace. Because until then, they can't enjoy the inheritance. They can't experience the grace. They can't show it to others. He said it was fitting, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother, notice not only my son, your brother was dead and alive. He was lost and is found. And the forgiving father shares the joy of gospel forgiveness and the transformation of life and relationship that comes through the gospel of grace. And he said, there needs to be a party. We need to celebrate this. Uh, Maybe you've forgotten that you were dead in your sins. Listen to the words again of Paul, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, the day that I was saved, I was raised from the dead spiritually. According to the word of God, I was dead in my sins. I was a spiritual corpse, and God raised me from the dead. Legalism can't raise anybody from the dead. Only Jesus can do that. Legalism can't resurrect a spiritual corpse, but Jesus can through his grace and through his gospel and through his power. He was lost and he was found. He was a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, but he's now been found. He was far from the provisions of grace and the protections of grace. That was me, that was you. And Luke, perhaps in the central verse of the entire gospel, when he's at Zacchaeus's house, also being criticized by the Pharisees for being there, who was, by the way, a tax collector, he said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his mission. That's why he came. That's the grace that he showed. The interesting thing about the end of this story, it just kind of drops off like a cliff with those words of the father. We're left with the question, what did the elder brother do? Did he repent? Did he join the celebration? We're not told. The story ends as if we are to write ourselves into the story. Sort of like the book of Jonah, where Jonah ends with God confronting him with his anger and his prejudice. And, 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 and we're wondering, did Jonah turn? We don't know. It ends as if we're looking in the mirror and saying, what about you? What about you? See, prodigals need grace for forgiveness. But Pharisees need grace for forgiveness. I want to ask you a question. 
that I had to ask myself as I prepared this message. It messed with me. As you write the ending of this story, are you here today as a prodigal who your life has been far from God and, and sin and, and you're coming and you're recognizing your need for forgiveness? I want you to know that the Father stands ready to welcome you and embrace you and forgive you. No matter what you have done, his grace is more than enough. No matter how far you have gone, he can restore. You're that lost sheep. You're that lost coin. You are the lost son. But I want to say to every one of us that would say, but I'm more like the Pharisee elder brother. Friend, your tradition and your legalism and your religiosity don't cut it. It's humility and faith and a desperate dependence upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the highway of grace. That's following Jesus. That's lordship. And a movement of God doesn't come from our external focus on traditions and ritual and legalism. It only is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I have uh, one picture in my office. I have many pictures of my wife on my screen on my iPad. But I got one picture that hangs in my office. It was in my library for 14 years in Pennsylvania, and it's hung for almost nine years in my office here. It's just one. It is a picture, not the original, by Rembrandt. The Prodigal Returns. Rembrandt, the Dutch artist, had a beautiful ability to, to take light and to draw your attention towards what he wanted you to focus on. And in that picture, you only see the backside of the prodigal son on his knees, dirty clothes, one sandal on, one off. And you see the father's hands embracing him. And that's where the light draws your attention, the embrace of the father. But there are some people in the background, in the shadows, not in the light. I've often wondered, is one of those the elder brother? How will you paint yourself into this story? If you need forgiveness, my friends, we're here for you as a church. Right back to my left, the little door there in the prayer room, and there's people that are ready to pray with you. Serious about it. We're, we're here for you. But if you've come in here with spiritual pride and self-righteousness and a critical judgmental spirit towards other people, I call you to repent. I call you to repent. Because friends, it doesn't matter which ditch you're in. If you're in a ditch, you're not on the road. And Phariseeism is a ditch you don't want to be in. So Father, speak to our hearts through the words of this song as we celebrate your grace, as we celebrate the gospel. May every prodigal come home. May every Pharisee put their self-righteousness on the garbage dump and embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.